I give thanks, uh, first of all, to God, and, and I express my deep appreciation to, to Pastor Rittenhouse, Pastor John, uh, for this, this invitation uh, to come and, and share with you in, in this foundation series. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, this is my wife, Deborah. I just want you to know who she is. So thanks, Deborah. Yeah. 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 And this first, we're, just, we're just glad to be here. A good, a good pastor friend of mine, I, I was sharing earlier uh, in the lobby, a good pastor friend of mine, always, who, who knows me well enough to know my, my default mode of, of dress. Uh, so uh, before inviting me to come preach for him one Sunday, he called me and said, don't wear your tie. Uh, so, um, uh, so Pastor Rittenhouse now knows me uh, well enough, and I'll probably get that call from him next time if, if, we, if we should, should come. Uh, but uh, uh, forgive me for being uh, overdressed, uh, but, but, uh, but, but nevertheless, we feel at home here and, and comfortable. And so we, we thank you uh, for your hospitality. Uh, you know, you, you tend to pick up uh, a dozen or so uh, preacher stories as you travel from, from place to place and from church to church. So I want to begin this morning by just sharing a preacher story uh, that I picked up uh, along the way. Uh, one day, truth and lie uh, were frolicking in the forest when they came across this small lake and decided to go swimming. Uh, so they each stripped down and, and jumped in the lake, but while Truth was distracted, having fun swimming in the lake, Lie sneaked out of the lake and took his clothes and stole Truth's clothes. So that is why... A lie is always dressed up like the truth, and the truth is always naked, as in the naked truth. Okay. Yeah. So don't, don't blame me. Blame the preacher I got that from. Okay. okay. So today, uh, we are attempting to discover the naked truth about the Bible, and, and the topic I'm focusing on uh, is a question, is is the Bible true? Uh, that's the uh, um, specific topic that, that I'll be uh, addressing. So, so we'll be, we'll be uh, doing this by actually addressing the question, is the Bible true? And, and usually when people ask, is the Bible true, what they are really asking is, is the Bible a series of empirically verifiable propositions and reports. Now, I know how that sounds. And again, you have to forgive me. It's kind of hard to leave the jargon behind uh, when, we, when we move uh, from one setting uh, to another. So let me, let me unpack that statement uh, just a little bit. Of course, the word empirical means of the senses. And, and the phrase empirically verified means known through the senses. So to ask if the Bible is true in the empirical sense is, is simply to ask, is the Bible true in the same way that a weather report was true when it accurately said that today will be sunny and mild or that we will have high winds tomorrow? 
Is the Bible true in the same way that a sportscaster report was true when he said the Lakers had a good season last season or they will have a good season next season? Is the Bible true in the same sense that your local grocer bulletin was true uh, when it said the lettuce today will be crisp and fresh? Is the Bible true in the sense that we or somebody at least could see, feel, hear, or experience its accuracy. Now, there are philosophers like John Locke, for example, or David Hume, who argue that only that which we can perceive with and through our senses is true. And their argument seems to make sense to a lot of people. Uh, to these people, the only truth there is, is empirically verifiable truth, the kind of truth that we know only through our senses. So when, when such people ask, is the Bible true, they are asking, did God really create the world and all that is in it in six 24-hour days? Did God really part the Red Sea? for Moses and the children of Israel to escape Pharaoh's army? Did God, did Jesus rather, really walk on the water? Uh, is the world someday really going to be taken over by the Antichrist? Well, these are the questions, but the problem is, is that so many of these questions, if not all of them, cannot be immediately verified one way or the other by means of our senses. And moreover, events like the ones they focus on are not part of our normal, everyday experience. And for this reason, many people who are convinced that empirically verifiable truth is the only truth there is, often come to the conclusion that the Bible cannot be true. You see, they are operating with only one view of truth. And let me just share a scenario that, that illustrates why this is a problem when it comes to the Bible. Imagine a poet, a botanist, and a lumberjack. If a poet, a botanist, and a lumberjack were placed in front of the same tree, and each one was asked to compose a description of that tree according to their professional perspective. The poet, of course, would give us a poetic description of the tree. The botanist would give us a scientific description of the tree. And the lumberjack would give us an engineer's description of the tree. Now, which of the three descriptions would be true? Well, the answer, of course, would be that all three of the descriptions would be true, but each in its own way. That is to say, each would be true according to its own criteria. And that's simple enough. But what would happen if someone tried to judge the poet's 
description of the tree according to the engineering criteria of the lumberjack. I believe that one would find that the poet's description of the tree simply will not measure up to the lumberjack's description of the tree. One might even say that the poet's description of the tree was not true because it does not satisfy the engineering criteria of the lumberjack. Or one might say the lumberjack's description of the tree is not true because it does not satisfy the scientific criteria of the botanist. Or one might say that the botanist's description of the tree is not true because it does not satisfy the poetic criteria of the poet. Needless to say, which means I'm going to say it, (laughs) judging each description by criteria that belongs to an altogether different field is simply not fair. And I don't think there would be any argument about that. Yet, it is something like this that frequently happens when people ask about the truthfulness of the Bible. Frequently, the Bible is judged to be untrue because it does not satisfy some type of criteria imported from an entirely different realm of discourse. For example, the creation story in the book of Genesis is said by some to be untrue because it does not meet scientific or certain geological criteria. The story of Joshua and the battle of Jericho is said to be untrue because it does not meet some criteria of historical reporting. The truth of the matter is, is that the shortfall is not with the Bible, but with the criteria that is being applied to the Bible. When the Bible says that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh day, the Bible is making a theological statement. That is to say, a statement about God and God's creative activity. It is not making a geological or scientific statement. Therefore, it is misguided to apply geological or scientific criteria to the Genesis creation account, just like it is misguided to apply the lumberjack's engineering criteria to the poet's account of the tree. To complicate matters even further, we frequently see the tendency to apply the same criteria to every part of the Bible. So 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 sometimes the the problem is compounded. Uh, First, many people apply the wrong criteria, and then they try to apply the same criteria across the board. As if the Bible was the same cloth in all of its parts. We especially see this problem reflected in the question, do you take the Bible literally? As if the Bible was meant to be read literally throughout. Many are convinced that the Bible should be read literally from cover to cover. 
This, however, is a failure to recognize that the Bible is made up of different kinds of material, and each kind elicits its own way of reading. Take the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, for example, in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. If one did a literal reading of the rich man and Lazarus, and you know, and you know that story. One day there was a rich man who dressed in purple and feasted sumptuously at his, at his table every day, and there was a poor man, man named Lazarus who sat at his gate full of sores. The door, dogs came and licked his sores. Uh, then one day both, both men died, and Lazarus was taken to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man lifted up his eyes in Hades. Uh, or hell. And, and then there was this conversation uh, between the rich man in Hades and Abraham while Lazarus was laying there in the bosom of, of Abraham. So if one did a literal reading of the rich man and Lazarus, one could easily get the impression that paradise, which, which is what Abraham's bosom symbolizes, paradise, one could easily get the impression that paradise and Hades are in close proximity to each other and that people in Hades can be seen by and communicate with people in paradise. Now, what kind of paradise is that? I mean, here I am in paradise, and I'm bugged every day by these people in Hades. But that's what a literal reading of the parable of the rich man and, and Lazarus will, will, will do. It, 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 said, it says to me that, that while I'm trying to enjoy the blessings of paradise, my, my, my good time will get interrupted by people in Hades. In reality, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is not meant to be taken as a literal description of the structure of heaven and hell, precisely because it is a parable. And parables are just not meant to be taken literally. Jesus himself never intended for his parables to be taken literally. And this is the significance of recognizing something we call genre in the Bible. Genre is the type or kind of material a section of the Bible is. So parable is a genre. Narrative is a genre. Prophecy is a genre. Metaphor is a genre. Sermon, like the Sermon on the Mount, is a particular genre. Apocalyptic language is a genre. There is genre like narrative, which, which is meant to be taken literally. But then there is genre like parable or metaphor or apocalyptic that is not meant to be taken literally. So correct treatment and interpretation of the Bible requires recognition of each when we 
when we recognize genre in the Bible, we realize that the Bible has more than one level of meaning throughout. The common mistake is to reduce the multiple levels of meaning in the Bible to only one. So, yes, there are different levels of meaning in the Bible. But moreover, there are different orders of statement in the Bible. A common mistake is to treat one order of statement as if it was another order. I'll give you an example. For example, if I were to say that the Colosseum is in Rome, there would be no debate about that. And, and of course, I mean uh, the, the Colosseum built by the Emperor Vespasian and finished by his son Titus, the Flavian Colosseum in Rome. So if I would say the Colosseum is in Rome, uh, yeah, there's no debate about it, especially if you've been to Rome. You, you realize there is no debate about that because the Colosseum is in Rome. But suppose I was to say the Colosseum in Rome is a magnificent piece of architecture. Well, there are still many people who would readily agree with that statement, but then there are others who will say, wait a minute, the Colosseum in Rome is a ruin. What do you mean it is a magnificent piece of architecture? It's just one step away from being rubble. Well, then I would have to explain how the Colosseum in Rome can still be a magnificent piece of architecture despite the fact that it is a ruin. And then there are those who saw the movie Gladiator starring Russell Crowe who might point out but look what happened inside of the Colosseum of Rome after it was built. The violence, the savagery, the maiming, the killing. What was magnificent about that? Then I would have to explain how the Colosseum in Rome can still be a magnificent piece of architecture despite the history of violence and savagery associated with it. And after all of that explanation, people still might disagree with me. So a statement like the Colosseum is in Rome is what we call a first-order statement of truth. And it requires no explanation. It requires no defense. It just is. But a statement like the Colosseum in Rome is a magnificent piece of architecture. Now, that is a second-order statement of truth. It requires some explanation. It requires some defense. And after all the explanation and all the defense, it still might elicit some debate and disagreement. So in the Bible, we have first-order statements of truth and second-order statements of truth. God created us male and female. That is a first-order statement of truth. The husband is the head of the wife like Christ is the head of the church. 
Now, that's a second order statement of truth, and that requires some explanation, a whole lot of explanation. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That is a first order statement of truth. But the statement, God created the world in six 24-hour days, that is a second-order statement of truth that will elicit some debate. Or the statement that God created the world in several million-year-long days is a second-order statement of truth that will elicit some debate. The problem is this. Too often, people want to treat every biblical statement and every biblical teaching like a first-order statement of truth, when in actually most biblical statements and most biblical doctrines are second-order statements of truth, and they require some defense and some explanation and will elicit some disagreement. Of course, closely related to the question of truth is the question of the authority of the Bible. The authority of the Bible is the Bible's right to claim our obedience. The Bible, of course, cannot have authority without being true, but parts of the Bible can be true without having authority. For example, in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, the devil tells Jesus Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, that, that, if, that if he is the son of God, he should throw himself down from the temple because it is written uh, that, that God will assign angels to him to bear him up, lest he dashes his foot against the stone. What Satan said was true because that is what the Scripture said, but his use of the Scripture had no authority because his intentions were contrary to God's will. Another example of truth with no authority are the three friends of Job, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Nahamatite. You don't need to know that. I just like saying those. I just like saying the words, so you know, the words just... Now, now, Eliphaz said to Job, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Well, that's the same thing the apostle Paul will say. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. So what he said was true enough. Bildad said to Job, if you seek God and make supplication to the Almighty, and if you are pure and upright, surely God will rouse himself for you and reward you with a rightful habitation. Well, that sounds right. That sounds true. Yes, what they said is true. But it had no authority because their presuppositions about Job was wrong. 
So what we learn from our engagement with the Bible is, is that the Bible is not just a series of empirically verifiable propositions and reports. The Bible is a multifaceted witness to God and his dealings with humankind. Moreover, truth itself is not just an empirically verifiable proposition or report. Truth is two things. First of all, truth is whatever God says and does. That's truth. But that's speaking generally. Speaking more specifically, second, truth is the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible is therefore true as a witness to God and to Christ. To argue that the Bible is only literally true is to reduce the Bible to one dimension. If the Bible was only, if the Bible is only literally true, then it simply would not be true enough. Because truth is simply too complex to be only literal. Therefore, the Bible is true at multiple levels, even at a level that exceeds the breaking point of language. For example, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. But now here's where the difficulty comes in. The Word was God. Or John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. What amount of logic is sufficient to unravel the truth of those statements for us? We cannot explain them. We can only believe in them. We can therefore define truth as the spiritually discerned apprehension of God's will. In other words, truth is revelation. And I want to be clear, especially in the 21st century, truth is not relative. Truth is not what everyone and anyone wants to make of it. I have a truth, you have a truth, all God's children got a truth. <laughs> Everybody has their own truth. No, 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 no. Truth is absolute. I mean, even the statement truth is relative has to be true if it's true. <laughs> so then by saying truth is relative, you're making an absolute statement. You're contradicting yourself. Truth is absolute. And externally established, but still, no one can know the truth without having a relationship with the truth. Because in the end, truth is a person, and you can only know him in relationship. Therefore, to reduce the truth to a set of facts and, and to try to know it from a detached distance is to begin with a woefully deficient notion of truth 
This is especially true when it comes to the truth of the Bible. So to apprehend the truth of the Bible, we must know the one the Bible bears witness to because the one the Bible bears witness to is the truth. He said it himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Amen. been asking kind of all the all the professors that have, that have been here you spend all your time teaching uh, you spend your time kind of debating and go thinking at real deep levels and you're around other professors and how how do you keep you, you mentioned that relationship how do you keep that relationship with Jesus fresh and alive and that the, the Bible just doesn't become a textbook or a how do you do that yeah part part of it's just just my own personal devotional life, which is the most important part of my day every day. In fact, when I miss my personal devotional time with the Lord, like I did this morning, uh, <laughs> I feel it all day. I feel it all day. I feel, I feel the drain. I feel the deficiency all day. Uh, so, you know, the first, first thing I'll, I'll do when I leave here is go, go mm -hmm. find time uh, mm -hmm. to pray. And that's, that's how my spirituality stays fresh, and that's how my relationship with the Lord stays vital mm -hmm. and alive. And, and when, when I engage the, the biblical texts, uh, yeah, we, we deal with all the dry technical background questions and that type of thing. And when I teach Bible to my students, I try to make them aware of these background issues just so that they'll be familiar, you know, with, with the questions, uh, the issues when they encountered it in their, them in their own reading and, and in their, their own study. Uh, but but, we, but we, keep, we keep coming back uh, to the important fact uh, is that, is that you know, these, this, this text, this text, which we call the scriptures, is, is, is the witness, the witness of, of men and, and women who, who have had an encounter uh, with God. Uh, most of them encountered God in, in the midst of <laughs> unspeakably horrible mm -hmm. circumstances and, and experiences. Uh, thank God, experiences that for the most part some of us will, will never uh, have, to, have to go through. And, and the question is, what, 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 are they, what are they saying down through the generations mm -hmm. and, and to us today about their experience with God? What, 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 what can we, yes, yes, their time, their location, their culture, different from ours, even alien uh, from ours, uh, but yet, but yet they've, they've had that encounter with God. What, what can we learn uh, from that? That, that sort of keeps things in balance yeah. for me. Well, that's really cool because uh, so far this has been the case with every, every uh, professor that's come. 
you know, because because you know, oftentimes and before I was a pastor, I would think, boy, if I became a pastor, it'd be great because then I could just like get paid to study the Bible, and um, and well, that isn't really what I thought, but uh, the uh, <laughs> but uh, so to be able to say, hey, I I do get paid to study the Bible, and still the thing that really uh, kind of and, and it refreshes me and gets me going is my daily time in the Word, which all of us can do without getting paid. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. I, I might say also, yeah, I, I, actually, I was a pastor myself also right. about, about, uh, about 28 years before, before entering uh, the, the, the academy, and, and that, that, has, that has been helpful. It uh, sort of gives me the ability to, to, to move back and forth uh, between both worlds, and one of the things that, 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 it, that it has taught me is, is just how important it is to deal with these uh, rubber meets the road uh, kind, kind of issues. It's, mm. it's very easy in the, the academy uh, to, you know, get the ivory tower uh, syndrome and, right. and, uh, and get, get so caught up in minutia and arcane types of issues uh, that one never asks the question, well, how does this translate into life and living? Sure. And so uh, my pastoral experience has been helpful in that. Good, regard. good. Uh, here's a question that came in. Are we to accept the canon, uh, which is the books of the Bible, uh, as determined by the various councils? Uh, some of those guys seem a bit shady or at least motivated by things not spiritual. Yeah. So if you want to just explain uh, the councils and, and, and then answer that question in two minutes, that would be fantastic. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm just playing. Yeah. Well, yeah. Ba- basically, the 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 canon, which, which is the, the the normative list of books that comprise our Bibles, the sixty six books of of the Bible, thirty nine Old Testament, twenty seven uh, in the New Testament, well, is the result of a of a long long process, uh, beginning in the second century A.D. and probably ending somewhere in the fourth century uh, A.D. Where, where, where the church finally said, these are the books that will be authoritative for us. These are the books that will be normative uh, for us and, and no, other, no other book. What, what, I, what I like to point out is that, that that decision was not really the decision of a select group of, of men or, or a particular council. There, there was something about these, these books I truly believe that. There was something about these. Because there were other books. There were other books that could have been considered biblical. And, and, so, and so there was, there was some competition uh, be, be, between, between books. The, the Shepherd of Hermas, the, the Epistle to, to Barnabas, the Gospel of Mary, the so-called apocryphal and pseudepigraphal uh, books. But there was something about these books that commended them to the hearts and minds of the people. It was not the councils. The councils just simply uh, uh, validated what the people had already decided, that these books are authoritative for us. And, and, I, and I think that's, that's because of, of a quality of the books, books themselves. And I, and I think that, that there is something God-ordained and divine about that. So, so I, don't, I don't think the biblical canon is arbitrary. Uh, I don't think we have a canon as a result of a series of political decisions. I really think that there was something self-commending about these texts, and that's why we have the books that we have today uh, comprising our, 
our Bible. Great, great. Um, somebody wrote, I love his emotion when he speaks. That's actually not a question, uh, just so you're aware. Uh, no, that's good. Uh, yeah, I, I was uh, looking in the scriptures because I, I think one of the uh, scriptures that really speaks to me on, on this idea of looking at the Bible, okay, this is, this is a poetry genre, this is apocalyptic, this, is, this, is this right here um, when it says, uh, it, it's out of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, for the wisdom, for the wisdom uh, of this world is foolishness in God's sight, as, as it is written. Okay, stop texting me so I can keep reading this. He catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. And, and when I look at the scripture, I'm actually excited about the fact that it's not every word is empirical because it allows you to come at the scriptures from so many different ways and to be able to know God in so many different ways. If my personality is typically analytical, the, the Bible can speak to me at that level. If, if, my, if I'm more emotional or whatever, the Bible can speak to me on that level as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One, 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 uh, one important uh, aspect of, of the scripture that the scripture itself witnesses to is is that is that you know the the bible is not just again uh, a series of dead letters the bible is it's almost interacted with us if it was living it's if it's, it's a living entity the, the, the word of god is quick and powerful we're told and sharper than any uh, two-edged sword so so the the bible is a living witness. That, that's, that's why it's considered inspired. The word inspired means God breathed. The Spirit continues to live in the words of the Scripture, and, and, the, and God's will continues to be breathed from God into us uh, through the Scripture. So, Scripture itself bears witness to His character mm-hmm. as a living and dynamic reality. That's really cool. We're going to end with this uh, question here, if the worship band wants to come up. Um, it says, do you think the little details in the Bible are important, or do you think that people spend too much time on proving these little things that they miss the point of the Scriptures? Yes, 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 I do, yeah. Especially, especially uh, when, it, when it comes uh, to the parables. One, one of the, one of the uh, things I tell my students, when you're dealing with the parables of Jesus, for example, you need to ignore the details uh, because parables are not allegories. With allegories, every detail means something. But with a parable of Jesus, what you want to get at is the main point, the main point, the main message of the parable. And, and if you get distracted by the details, you might miss that point. For example, the parable of the dishonest manager um, who, who, is, who is, as the parable says, is, is dishonest um, because he takes his uh, master's debtors and reduces the, their debt load and that kind of thing. But the master commends commends uh, this honest manager for his shrewdness. So what does that mean? Does that mean it's, it's okay to do wrong as, as long as you get away with it? <laughs> well, if you get focused on the detail that, that, the, uh, that in this parable the dishonest manager is getting commended, yeah, you could come to that conclusion. But if you focus on the main point, the main point of that, of that parable, which is we should use our, the resources that God gives us to help others, uh, then, then, then you, then you're you're able to get to the point and not not stumble over such a detail. Oh, that's great. That's great. Hey, thank you so much oh, for you. for thank joining you. us this morning. I appreciate it.